Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Glass Labyrinth by Stanton A. Koblenz On a certain June evening, that I consider one of the most memorable of my life, nothing was further from my mind than the thought of adventure. Lulled by the languorous warm air, I had been strolling in the early twilight by the banks of Westmore Creek, smoking my pipe in long, contented puffs, in one of those moods halfway between dreamy lethargy and delighted enjoyment of my surroundings. It was accordingly with a shock that the leisurely current of my reveries was broken, and that, on rounding a clump of bushes by the water's brink, I heard myself accosted by an excited voice. "'Professor Brattle! By the stars, if it isn't Professor Brattle! Just the man I've been wanting to meet!' The sound of one's own name pronounced unexpectedly when one's mind is far away always comes with something of the sensation of a thunderclap. But in this case, the impression was all the more startling, because the speaker, in his eagerness, projected himself toward me as if out of a catapult, and because he was one of the oddest-looking individuals I had ever encountered. Picture for yourself a little, thin man, scarcely more than five feet in height, with a head of disproportionate size, a wrinkled, bald head with huge oval brow and deep-set, strained-looking eyes, a head which, apparently large enough for two, was tilted at an angle like the leaning tower of Pisa, while the pale, flexible features worked with emotion, and the agitated words came forth, "'Professor Brattle! Professor Brattle! By God, it's providential that we meet tonight. How are you, Professor? How are you?' He shot out a lean hand, which I could not help taking, and the warmth and enthusiasm of his clasp surprised me. But as I stared into those tiny, penetrating eyes, I had only the vaguest recollection of ever having encountered their possessor before. "'Don't remember me, do you, Professor?' he rattled on, quick to note my embarrassed situation. "'Well, we met three years ago at the International Institute of Higher Physics. I was a brother delegate, and was struck by the able talk you gave on introducing Herr Einstein.' "'Yes, yes, yes!' I interrupted. Now I recall. Your name is Roderick Morrow, Dr. Roderick Morrow, a name, I dare say, that the world will know more of hereafter. In reply, I could merely grunt. Of all the queer specimens I had ever run across, this man was the queerest. You don't believe me, Professor? He spurted on. Well, if I do say it myself— I've made discoveries that will place me beside Newton and Edison. My astonishment was fast turning to pity. It now appeared that the man was not merely queer, he was a lunatic. Yes, beside Newton and Edison, he reiterated, while I, looking gloomily about me, was wondering how to escape. Come with me. Let me show you. He took my arm. And though I did my best to resist some compelling magnetism in his bright eye, some strange contagion in his enthusiasm drew me forward at his side. "'You must come with me. You must come,' he ejaculated, in a series of rapid sputterings. "'Just this evening, 
I perfected the masterpiece. Would you believe it? Just this very evening. It works. Works like a charm. Never in all the ages was anything like it seen. The Cosmospectograph, I call it. Cosmo-what? Cosmospectograph. Or just the spec, for short. But wait, <laughs> you'll see. I was just rushing out. Just rushing out to find someone to show it to. And then it was providential, Professor. I came upon you. Just the man to appreciate it. But what's it all about? I demanded, as my captor hastened me along at an ever-increasing speed. I noted what an eager fire flashed from his deep slits of eyes. I observed how heavily he panted, and how his shoulders heaved in his agitation. And I could not help being just a little interested, despite myself. "'Come, come, come!' he exclaimed, still accelerating our pace, although we were already moving at a gait altogether out of keeping with the mood of the peaceful June evening. "'For eleven years I have worked at it. Eleven years, best years of my life,' he snapped in his hurried staccato, while he rushed me across an automobile-laden road with such recklessness that I feared I should not survive to learn what he had worked at. "'Right around the corner, right around the corner,' he hastened on. "'There's my studio. I've admitted no one for years.' Though relieved to know that our mad chase was nearly over, I had an impulse to turn back even at this point, for I was still convinced that my newfound acquaintance was a madman, though possibly a harmless one. Little did I suspect that the most amazing episode of my life lay just ahead. Into a huge, dilapidated-looking old house he led me, then down a flight of steps and through a dark doorway, where he paused, almost invisible in the gloom. Now, prepare yourself, he counselled mysteriously. I do not wish to reveal the speck too suddenly, lest the shock should overwhelm you. Oh, I guess I'll be able to bear it, I grumbled, not liking the idea of standing there in that dismal cellar, without so much as a spark of light to reassure me that I was not being led into a den of thieves. Well, then, uh, shield your eyes. Steady yourself. Here goes, he warned, in a deliberate and grandiose manner. But still, nothing happened. I was mumbling something under my breath, and beginning to retreat a step or two, when suddenly I heard the snapping of a switch, and the place was deluged with light. Instinctively I blinked, and flung a hand protectively to my forehead. The illumination was so intense that for a moment I was dazzled, and could make out no object in particular. All that I knew was that the light was of a peculiar, penetrating blueness, hard, cold, and almost unearthly in its vivid brilliance. It was as if thousands of bulbs, with a concentration of heatless, inimical fire, were glaring upon me all at once. See! See! The speck! The cosmospectograph! exclaimed Dr. Morrow, hopping up and down in throes of irrepressible excitement, like a child at some new game. Fortunately, I've always been gifted with powerful eyesight, and it was, therefore, but a moment before I was able to adjust myself to the blaze of lights. 
and what I saw, as I gradually took in the spectacle before me, was enough to make anyone gasp in bewilderment. Mirrors and mirrors and mirrors, mirrors by the dozens, by the scores, by the hundreds. Throughout the entire basement, which was an exceptionally large one, they were spread in every nook and corner, and with all queer arrangements. They covered the floors, so that one had but narrow trails to walk on. They glared from the ceiling, they mantled the walls, they were bent and twisted at every conceivable angle. There were plain mirrors and curved mirrors, large mirrors and small mirrors, convex mirrors and concave mirrors, mirrors tinted red, and mirrors with a yellowish colouring. There were tall mirrors placed opposite one another in crooked parallel lines, forming labyrinthine passageways. There were round mirrors, triangular mirrors, and star-shaped mirrors. There were rotating mirrors that moved rapidly amid a buzz of motors and cast dagger-like flashes of light. There were prismatic mirrors that shed rainbow glints and sparkles in captivating profusion. For a moment, I was speechless. I merely stared in the manner of a man who, not believing in ghosts, has just seen an apparition. Was this but the contraption of some ingenious monomaniac? See? See? I told you you'd be surprised. I told you, exclaimed Morrow, jubilantly, as he bustled back and forth, his huge head tilted at a sharper angle than ever above his undersized shoulders. It does look extraordinary, I started to admit, fumbling for words. Extraordinary? Wait, Professor, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't watched the speck in action. Well, what's it like in action? If I were to tell you, he declared, as he ranged back and forth impatiently, you wouldn't believe me. No, Professor, you couldn't believe me. You'd say I'm crazy, just as all the others have done. Not presuming to disagree, I waited for him to continue. Before I explain, let me demonstrate, he hurried on. Seeing is believing, they say. <laughs> Are you ready? I nodded in the affirmative. Morrow darted over to a switchboard near the door and pressed his hand to a lever. Here, we'll begin mildly, he said, and he turned a dial to the number 1300. Instantly, the blue light was deepened, until its intensity became almost unbearable. There was a whirring, as of motors in rapid rotation, and a clicking of levers. Scores of the mirrors began to shift and revolve on hinges and axles. Red and white electric sparks darted from the ceiling, and there was a crackling as of muffled thunder. But what particularly caught my attention? was the reflection just before me in one of the mirrors. The figure of a helmeted man on horseback darted into view, life-sized, and distinct enough to be recognized as a medieval knight. Behind him rode others, their lances gleaming and sparkling, their banners brilliantly waving. I saw the flashing of the iron corslet. I almost felt I could hear the clanking of the heavy mail. And in the background, the grim, squat shape of a castle with armed guards around it and a drawbridge and moat made me feel as if I had been transported back to the Middle Ages. 
See, the year 1300, cried the elated Morrow. Real as life itself. Now, what other period would you like to see? Well, I... Uh, how about 1300 BC? I exclaimed, reeling like one who has lost touch with all solid things. Very well, acquiesced the inventor, turning the dial to 1300. Do you mind stepping down the aisle a little ways? Y yes, there, down that corridor between the slanting mirrors. I did as directed, and, in a moment, had a glimpse of desert sands, and tasseled Egyptians, and a long funeral procession, with slaves carrying palm branches, painted boxes, fruits and flowers, while to one side flowed a wide, reedy river that I recognized as the Nile. Still staggering a little, I realized that I had been borne back more than thirty-two hundred years through time. After this, I was ready for nearly anything. I could scarcely have been more shaken had I been shown scenes on Mars, or on Sirius. Hence I could only stare, and gasp in astonishment, when given glimpse of Babylonia in the year 4000 BC, and when transported back to 20,000 BC, to the day of the Neolithic caveman. I now saw no reason to doubt Morrow's statement that he could get recognizable impressions as far back as 100,000 BC. Beyond that, he declared, we will need more power, which, of course, we'll develop in time. Then, with an odd twinkle in his eyes, he switched the dial to 2500 and exclaimed, Suppose now we go into the future? Before I was able to do more than mumble incredulously in reply, a reddish tinge overcame the light, and I was aware of curious-looking figures moving on some of the more remote mirrors. Over there! Step over that way, requested the inventor, as, nearly tripping over one of the floor glasses in my excitement, I made haste to follow directions. So utterly bewildered had I became that I stared like one in a dream, my memory as retained but scattered fragments of the forms that flickered across the mirror. I have a recollection, however, of a city with mountainous towers that would dwarf those of Manhattan, a city with a succession of elevated moving platforms instead of streets, a city above which multitudes of men glided on little flying devices with outstretched wings not much longer than their arms, which enabled them to dart back and forth, to zigzag and spiral with tremendous speed, or else to remain poised almost motionless like an insect hovering above a flower. So, how do you like the year 2500? inquired Morrow, with a smile that seemed to say, Well, sir, are you ready to congratulate me now? Suppose next we take a view of 3000 or 4000, he went on. But no longer able to bear the succession of shocks, I slumped down in exhaustion against one of the mirrors and interrupted my host with an impatient gesture. No, no, wait a while. I, I've seen enough for one evening, enough for any man. First, tell me, Doctor, tell me, how do you accomplish it? Why, I'll swear it's the most miraculous achievement of the age. I know that, he admitted, 
still embarrassed by no false modesty. But the principle is very complicated. You really wish me to explain? Uh, of course. To make everything clear would require many hours. One cannot cover the whole of eleven years' research in a minute. But, stated in its simplest terms, the principle is one of higher mathematics. It's what I may call the conservation of time and space. Conservation of time and space. Exactly. His eyes gleamed brilliantly, and his great head tossed energetically back and forth. You see, it's all a matter of dimensions. The fourth dimension includes not only space, but time. The fifth includes these two, in addition to a third, imponderable, which can be expressed only by mathematical symbols, but which includes the totality of all things, unchanging and everlasting. It is in the fifth dimension that I have worked, Professor. There everything that has ever happened or ever will happen exists, exists continually, and sends out its vibrations through the lesser dimensions. Uh, vibrations? I demanded, my head reeling with the difficulties of the explanation. What kind of vibrations? Dr. Morrow rubbed his bald pate thoughtfully, and wrinkled his brow till it assumed the appearance of a long overripe apple. Vibrations of a new type, hitherto undiscovered, exceedingly faint pulsations in the ether, to which I have given the name of the Z-ray. I discovered them quite by chance one day, when experimenting with a new kind of electric lamp, made with a manganese filament and a potassium vapour. This is the lamp which, with modifications, you see about you now." He pointed above him eagerly to the scores of bulbs which steeped the place in its uncanny blue radiance. By means of the lamps, attached to an ordinary television receiving set, I have been able to catch the Z-rays. How or why, I do not know, any more than the discoverers of the Hertzian rays knew why they were able to utilize these vibrations in the radio. But the fact was that I could use the Z-rays. For many years my problem was to make them practically available, and with that thought in mind I devised a series of mirrors in which they could be reflected, magnified, and held. This alone has occupied me for seven and a half years. You can imagine my elation, Professor, when finally I ironed out the last difficulty." As if to give proof of this elation, the Professor went hopping about the room ecstatically, until I feared that he would run full tilt into one of the mirrors, and so put a sorry end to his experiment. "'I'm afraid I don't thoroughly understand,' I admitted, after he had ceased his mad peregrinations. You mean to say these vibrations, these Z-rays, are pulsating about us at all times, in the manner of radio waves or cosmic rays? Well, not exactly. The inventor rubbed his lean chin with a bony hand, and wrinkled his face into a thoughtful expression. You see, the third dimension and the fourth and fifth are continuous and interpenetrating, and in order to feel vibrations from either of the latter two, one must project oneself into them. You mean, we have just now been in the fourth and fifth dimensions? Naturally. Otherwise, how be reached by fourth and fifth dimension impressions? Morrow hopped several yards along the wall, and pointed to a little green switch 
half hidden between two mirrors. See that? That's the dimension adjuster, to hold the doorway open, as it were, between the dimensions. And what's that other lever? I inquired, indicating a small blue switch just beneath the green one. Oh, that, uh, that's just the emergency brick. I put it there as a precaution. If anything goes wrong with any part of the machinery, one has only to pull that to shut off the power. As a matter of fact, I don't suppose we'll ever need it. Don't suppose so, said I, accepting this remark on its face value. Unfortunately, it did not occur to me to look carefully at the emergency brake, and note its exact appearance and position. But how bitterly I was to rue this oversight one short hour later. With my head still reeling, I was preparing to leave for the evening, when Moro seized my arm with an importunity beyond my power to resist. No, Professor, just a few minutes more. I've one final surprise for you. How would you like to witness a continuous panorama, from Julius Caesar to the day of our grandchildren's grandsons? Wait, I'll have it prepared in just a minute. Heedless of my protests, he seized a small kit of tools and went gliding away along one of the labyrinths, between two curving lines of six-foot mirrors. In an instant, he had been lost to sight, but I could hear his heavy breathing and the sounds of scraping, tapping, and hammering as he laboured somewhere not far off. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes went by. I began to grow impatient. "'Aren't you ready, doctor?' I called. "'My head's aching. I can't wait much longer.' Just a second. Another second, rasped his excited tones. God damn this electro-primoscope. I can't get it adjusted. And then the sound of scraping, tapping, and hammering was heard again, though at an accelerated tempo. Make it quick, or you won't find me here, I challenged. If only I had shown more patience for I am sure that it was my words that urged Morrow to a burst of excessive speed, and that were responsible for some careless mistake and the ensuing disaster. Suddenly, from above the mirrors where the inventor was hidden from view, there shot a succession of vivid white sparks, so bright that I was momentarily blinded. Simultaneously, a spurt of smoke shot upward, and a peculiar acrid odour came to my nostrils. And, at the same time, my ears were assaulted by an unearthly howl. It was half a yell of anguish, and half an articulate cry, shrill, piercing, and desperate. Quick! Quick, Professor! Quick! The emergency break! Emergency— Though my eyes were so dazzled by the lights that I could hardly tell one object from another, I leaped toward the indicated point. "'Quick, Professor! Quick! Before it's too late!' screamed the voice, while the white spark still spurted forth, and the odour of smoke grew sharper in my nostrils. Amid the glare and horror of that moment, I caught sight of a small rod sticking out between the mirrors. "'Quick, Professor! Quick!' wailed the imploring voice, and frantic not to lose a second, I flung out my hand and snatched at the rod. Even to this day, I am not quite clear as to the appalling sequel.
It was as if I had touched off a charge of dynamite. There came a deafening, thudding roar, accompanied by a blaze of crimson light. The floor beneath me shook. The walls groaned as if from an earthquake. I heard the crash of shattering glass, and my legs gave way, and I sank down, stunned and nearly senseless. It may have been many minutes before I had recovered and rose uncertainly to my feet. The smoke had cleared away. An unearthly blue glare suffused the place, which was strewn with the fragments of a score of great mirrors. But where was the inventor? Doctor, I called. Doctor Morrow, where are you? My voice rang strangely, as if in a tomb, and there was no response. Doctor, where are you? I repeated, fearing that he had been gravely injured, or even killed. Where are you? Where are you? Still receiving no reply, I hastened down the passageway. His toolkit was plainly visible, the hammer and pliers scattered on the floor as if hastily abandoned. But the inventor was not to be seen. With confused and throbbing head, I hastened back to the spot where Morrow had bade me wait for him, and sank down in sheer exhaustion. At the same time, by some uncanny attraction, my eyes were drawn to a little blue switch on the wall, the emergency brake. Leaping up, I observed it in horror. It was pressed flat against the plaster, in exactly the position in which I had first seen it. But just above it was a green switch, the dimension adjuster, which stuck out as if wrenched violently out of place. Groaning, I sank to the floor. All too well I knew what I had done. Maddened by haste, I had pulled the wrong switch. In that first moment of dread realization, my only thought was for the inventor. Having tried to throw back the dimension adjuster, and found that it would not respond, I had no impulse except to dash off again down the galleries of mirrors after the lost man. With no more premeditation than that of a terrier scurrying away after a rat, I found myself among the mirrors once more. Doctor! Doctor! I repeated my call of a minute before. Where are you? Where are you? The echoes came back to me with a mocking note, but there was no other response. Morrow! Dr. Morrow! I cried once more. Here I am! Tell me where... where to find you! Again silence, except for those same insulting echoes. After still another fruitless try, I could stand it no longer. A fierce, unreasoning terror took possession of me. My only impulse was to rush away, to rush away as from a place of plague, to dash out of the house and cry for help. After some difficulty, I groped my way to the door and up the basement stairs to the street. So wild and disheveled was my appearance that I do not wonder that passers-by thought me out of my head. Gradually, a crowd gathered, but it was long before, with much difficulty, I managed to persuade my hearers that I was quite sane, that a man in mortal peril required immediate help. Possibly half an hour had passed, 
before, accompanied by several policemen and a multitude of hangers-on, I descended again to the basement. Even as I did so, I felt fresh misgivings. Would it not have been wiser to search for Mora myself than to bring this crazed mob in at my heels? So stormily did they push their way downstairs that the combined effect was like that of an earthquake. The whole building trembled. The shock was more than the delicately adjusted mirrors would stand. For an instant, a time so sudden and fleeting that to this day I cannot be sure if what I saw was illusion or fact, I was aware of an image from the direction of the mirrors. There was a huge oval head, a pair of deep-set strained-looking eyes, and two lean sticks of arms reached out imploringly. But almost before I could draw a breath, all was changed. Shaken by the rush of invading feet, the remaining mirrors collapsed and fell in a shower of fragments, mingling their scraps with those of the previous disaster. Long and eagerly we searched, but still there was no sign of Mora. That odd-looking, earnest form was nowhere among the ruins. Nor did further searching, nor inquiries by the police, bring any results. It is the view of the authorities that he was either spirited away or fled while I was calling for help. But it is my own opinion that he is still alive, though beyond our reach, that he is trapped in the fourth dimension, or the fifth, experiencing who knows what remarkable adventures in the time of the cave-dweller, or in that of the unborn Superman.